Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, always with Michael McKee. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. It is a tough time to make money in uh, financials. Sally Krawcheck was charged with doing that for years and years in her career at various banks on Wall Street. Now she is the CEO, of course, of Elvest, and I want to talk about Elvest in just a moment. But let me just ask you, from your background, as long as we're talking about banks, um, has, has banking changed significantly, and is it at a point now where you can't value banks the same way because of regulation? Uh, uh, well, you tell me, what is the normal return on equity through a cycle of well, bank. There's an Name interesting question, though, because in the right? in the in the aughts, I, mm-hmm. I still have trouble with that as the name yeah. for a decade. But because of the outsized risks the banks took, then the return on equity was much greater. As a, so when you say normal, no, 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 no. Okay. The peak return on equity was higher. Are we allowed to say that on radio? No, 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 But the oh, the peak was great, and everybody used to look at these banks and say, "Look, they get fifteen percent." Return or twice. Yeah. That's nor no, that was peak. Yeah, the well, trough more than wiped it out. So I don't know. I've got to go back and do this, but I'm actually not a bank analyst anymore. But at some point, just for fun, when's the last time the banks through a cycle earned their cost of capital? It's a long time ago. Yeah. Long time ago. And so now we're sort of shaking this out. What is that normal ROE? Nobody knows. And that's why these things have been just luck. Which is obviously now. A, how do we quote that in a headline? Crotchex says blanks, banks I mean, are <laughs> right. I mean, people people look at Citigroup and say, "Oh, look, Citi's back at forty five. Like, no, that's four dollars and fifty cents <laughs> because it did the ten for one reverse. These things have been terrible for a long time as stocks. What about the financial industry in general? Uh, it's it has changed significantly. A lot of the people that you knew don't work on Wall Street. They're in Connecticut now. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, it, it, Has it changed for the better or has it just changed? Well, first of all, it's, it's changed. So on a couple of metrics, Tom and I were talking about this earlier, diversity, the, the skin color and gender of people work there, it's gone backwards. So it's become less inclusive over time. Um, some of the riskier businesses have been reined in. We just don't know if it's enough, frankly, till we go through the next downturn. And then other businesses, some of the great businesses, the ones that I um, was got to be involved in when I was there, the wealth management businesses, they're under siege from a, a lot of different areas. So it's still yeah. out there. Sally, this goes into what you're doing with LFS. Time Warner to own 10% of Hulu. And we'll get experts on it. We'll talk about digital television and the new distribution of TV. This goes to the heart of what you've done the last three years, which is the new distribution of financial advice to people. And this goes into the new digital banking and all. Is the world of finance in America going to be totally different in 10 years? Or are there still going to be four branches on every four corners in New York City and sort of business as usual with bolt on digital? Or does it subsume the old model? It is such a great question. And it's going to change quite a bit um, over whether it's next 10 years or 20 years. We all know branches are going to be gone at some point. You know, my old business, the financial advisor business, I was with a brokerage firm not so long ago that told me they have more advisors over the age of 80 than under the age of 30. I will let that sink in. 
And so, you know, and, and it's tough to innovate, Tom, in those places, having been there because of the regulations, because of the processes, because right. of the quarterly earnings, which is why a reason there are big opportunities that are available. The one that we saw, I saw with Elevest, is that women don't invest to nearly the same extent that men do. This may or may not be related to the fact that Wall Street tends to be, you know, very male. And it cost women tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of dollars over the course of their lives. And we're not solving this by putting a bunch of offices through the country. We're solving it in a digital way, which women are really looking for right now. Well, what, what is it that that uh, attracts them? And I'm thinking of, I know a lot of women who don't want to go to a male doctor. Right. So there are a lot of women doctors, but that hasn't put the males out of business and, and not every woman goes... Yeah. You know, yeah. So, so what are they looking for that you provide other than, okay, this is a woman's platform? Well, I, I'll tell you, um, it starts with, and this is what the research says, that women, there are lots of financial advisors who do a great job for women. Women report overall that they feel patronized, that they look at Wall Street and they don't see something that resonates with them. I mean, think about it. The language of the industry is outperform, beat the market, pick the winner. The symbol is a bull. And there's not a lot of women who look at those <laughs> war and sports analogies in that bull and say, that brand is so yeah. me. On top of that, there's some super important things. Women live longer than men. Women's salaries peak sooner than men. And women tend to be more risk aware. They want to understand risk more. And Wall Street hasn't, and investing hasn't been doing that for them. So we're doing that in a digital platform where we take away the, hey, you want to pick a large cap value mutual fund versus a small cap growth ETF. And instead, the conversation we have with her online is, do you want to buy a house? Do you want to retire well? You want to start yeah, a business? Here's okay, how you get there. What's your advice to James Diamond? to drive forward Chase Digital because my experience is all the old guard say, you know what, our our customers love digital. Oh, yeah. Whatever it is, whether it's Elevest or it's checking or – Mike, I went into a, a branch bank the other day because they had to sign my life away with a notary uh, public thing. I think it was the first time I was in a branch bank in like, yeah. what, yeah. two years? Love digital, certainly younger cu customers, but the more mature customers as well. And I'll tell you the little secret about what we're seeing at Elevest is people are go. Everybody told me, you're going to have to have financial advisors. Women want a human. And I thought, okay, that makes sense. And the women told us they wanted a human until they got into the experience and realized they didn't have to, you know, sort of figure out what standard deviation was and pick the stocks and so on. And all of a sudden they said, you know what, I, I can control this. I can, I can figure yeah. out when I want to start my business. So people, they aren't doing it, Tom, nine to five. Michael McKeon, Tom Keen with Sally Krawchuk uh, on a wide, diverse range of matters. One of them, Sally, is the belief, and, and just in the last 24 hours, I've seen all sorts of pundits and the non-qualified basically say, go to cash. There's a lot of that emotion out there. <laughs> go to cash. Do this. Go to cash. Now, I don't want to, you know, do a market thing with you because I know you're not doing the Sanford Bernstein thing tick by tick now. But come on. Things are priced to perfection. No one saw this move up, basically. The hedge fund industry, 2 and 20 uh, crew, has been clobbered. Right. Well, how do you respond as Sally Krawchuk when you see newspaper reports from everyone saying, Go to cash. Oh, come on. 
Come on. Go to cash. <laughs> she gives us the best headlines. Like they know. Honest <laughs> to goodness. I mean, give it me feel a good break. to be not in the C-suite like, where you can say job. Brad, Brad Get Hintz. a real job. Get a real job. When Brad Hintz was at Sanford Bernstein, he had a Grand Banks 48, and the name of the boat was Go to Cash. How do you respond to <laughs> Go to Cash? Stop it. Everybody, take a, you know, relax, for goodness sake. Nobody knows where the market is going. Warren Buffett doesn't know where the market it is going so you know this view that you can call it time it is is a waste then of time what do you do as an investor when you you're but you're buffeted by thank you by one that buffeted by warren buffett go to cash right well you invest in a diversified investment portfolio and go work for goodness sake well, i, I think mean you, 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 I, what, yeah what you say with elevast mm-hmm. makes sense it, don't look at the individual stock that you're turning over it's what your goal is at the end well and invest regularly i mean we've got 75 percent of our women who are now investing regularly and so you know sometimes you should have gone to cash and sometimes bonds were expensive and sometimes stocks were cheap nobody can call this and so the the right way to do this is invest over <clears> time and sometimes you'll be buying things on sale and sometimes you won't but you know, I if if I hear one more time, you know, about bonds being, you know, this terrible investment, and yet they haven't been. Still. <laughs> Still. Still. And by the way, investing is always hard. I remember back when I was a research analyst at Sanford Bernstein, Tom, it felt really hard then. And hindsight is just so dang 2020, right? It just <laughs> yeah. seems so easy when you look and you know exactly what's going to happen. Amazing. Exactly. Amazing. You've got uh, a fund that invests in companies with women on boards that's yeah. done very well. But in general, how does LFS pick what it's going to invest in for me if I'm... Well, they're two separate things. So Elevest is a digital investment platform for women. It invests in ETFs or managed ETF portfolios with a goal of getting you to your goal, buy that house, retire well, or better in 70% of markets. Based so on risk or what? what? Based, it's, it's based on your personal characteristics. You are this age, you are in that much. We actually project out your life, your salary curve. We project out when you're going to die which will be sooner than women. Tom doesn't want to know. (laughs) And then we put you in a very inexpensive managed ETF portfolios with that goal of getting you there or better. And we alert you if you fall off track for it. Okay, so that's one. Well, am I picking the stocks? No, 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 no. You're no, doing no. that. We're a fiduciary. That's but our job. Do, we have decades you, of experience. I mean, you alert me if you've fallen off that. No, well, I, if you fall off track because you don't make a deposit. Oh, or I if see. we fall off track because we didn't project this kind of market environment and let you know what to do to get back on. Isn't that refreshing? Because now you think about back in January, were you on or off track for your goals? Nobody knows. So that's Elevest. I have another initiative, PAX Elevate Global Women's Index Fund, invests in the top-rated companies for advancing women. Boy, you may be thinking, that is a dumb investment strategy. I've never heard such a stupid idea in my life. And it's based on percent of women on board, percent of women in senior leadership team. It's outperforming now a couple of years in. To my mind, it is the least crowded trade. Because, Tom, you will know this back when I was a research analyst and I would come visit you, Every single time we talk about a company, you would ask me, do you think management is any good? I would answer it with some answer that was my opinion. The only quantification I've seen of the value of management, which is so important, is based on diversity, indeed gender diversity, which leads to outperformance, leads to better well, business results. So I, I, you know, it is not better ROEs by a touch. It's by a lot. 
And yet the street mm-hmm. doesn't recognize that diversity can right. drive better performance. It's the least crowded trade out there. 30 seconds. What's Janet Yellen need to do? We've got a, a complete distortion in the bond market. Everyone agrees we're ultra accommodative. What would uh, Governor Krawchuk recommend to the chair? Well, look, it always hurts to raise rates, but at some point, I mean, to me, you know, the economy doesn't feel horrible. When I typically say this, I then get people tweet at me, you know, you're, ah, you don't know, it's this is bad. And there are, there's swaths of people who've lost their jobs who, who need to be retrained. It's tragic. If you look at the economy overall, and I'm in the economy every day, it doesn't feel terrible. It's never a great time to raise rates. When you raise rates, the banks tend to, you know, sort of every time, you know, have, have a, I want to say crisis is a strong word, but put it with a C, falter. Um, okay. The markets falter, and it's scary. We're going to falter towards a break. Sally Krawcheck, generous of your time this morning on many topics. What do you do these days? Do you? And we were talking with Sally Krawcheck. Do you uh, get out uh, of? Everything right now, go to cash, as Tom suggested, and uh, as she laughed at. Uh, Michael Purvis has to make these recommendations, chief global strategist for Whedon & Company. Um, Sally was pretty positive on the idea of you just continue to find good investments and keep your money in it, and don't panic right now. Um, But the world looks like it's on the edge of its chair, ready to panic. So what do you advise? Well, I think I'm in, in Sally's camp on, on this one. Uh, you know, the, the, the equity markets have proven this year and over over several of the last few years that they've been able to climb uh, walls not just of worry but also of hatred. You know, there's been a kind of revulsion with the uh, the, the price earnings multiples and the peg ratios um, uh, that you see. You know, and certainly you in the U.S. equity asset class. Um, but you know, within that, there's a lot of great. You know, Apple's trading at 12 times earnings, and uh, there's a lot of other companies. That that are you know attractively priced and also pay dividends that are noticeably higher than what you're going to get on the 10-year Treasury yield, and the S and P 500 pays a, a dividend yield noticeably higher than what you're going to get on the 10-year. Yeah, but uh, you know uh, we're we're looking at stocks that a lot of people think are just at levels that are created artificially by Janet Yellen. Right. I mean, if you two days after Brexit, right? You know, immediately after Brexit, you had this huge sort of volatility spike and equities sold off and utilities actually put in a lifetime high two trading days after after the Brexit right and that really was a testament to what Yellen and actually her peers in Japan and and, and Europe have been doing with with you know taking bond yields to levels that we've never seen before or even contemplated before so I think the the um, you know, there's certainly things where you're looking at utilities, which are not only just stretched in terms of, you know, many valuations, but they're within a lot of these utilities, you're looking at, at they've almost been manufactured to be sort of turbo bonds in a way. And in other words, that the amount of money that they pay out as dividends is much higher than they might have been normally and, and, and so forth. So I think you have to be very careful with some of those. Uh, some of those. On the other hand, there are other companies, you know, there's some MLPs that are actually, the MLP asset class is one that's been, you know, really unloved because of the the oil crash, and if volumes start uh, coming back in, in 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 a lot of these basins, a lot of those will benefit, and and they have a lot of catch up certainly with their peers and their, that are REITs or or the uh, utilities. Well, you know, the, selling stocks is always telling a story, and that sounds like a good story until I look and I see West Texas is at thirty nine eighty right, right now. Right. 
Yeah, I, I, I put a note out a couple of weeks ago saying, you know, watch for a, a sort of a, a tactical move in oil from 45 to 40. So we're now here. We're just a little bit below 40. I, I'm not, you know, tactically going long just yet, but I probably will be at some point soon. I don't look at this move as as something really um, uh, uh, akin to what we saw back in January and February when oil was going to 26 and people were saying talking about 10 and 15. I don't think it's I don't think it's it's that. I think it's a function of of gasoline inventories um, being higher than expected. The summer drive being a little bit weaker there. But uh, you know, my broader framework for oils it's sort of in that 40 to 55 uh, range, and it's not probably going to get too much weaker here unless we get something. You know some some real you know supply up uh, uh, upside, and so the uh, oil impact here. on other asset classes fades as well. Yes, exactly. It was really interesting. If you saw yesterday, you saw the S and P crude relationship get t- almost tick for tick yesterday, right in the middle of the day. That relationship had been fading over the last few weeks. And it really came back. And so it was interesting. It's sort of a test. You saw crude, you know, equities could handle crude being, you know, going from 50 to 45. Once you get down to that 40 handle and breaking 40, I think it was sort of psychological. And it almost seemed like some programs kicked in that was keeping that correlation as tight as we saw yesterday. So if we go lower on crude here, yeah, it's going to be it's going to be pressure on equities. Well, a couple – well, it was like last week, a couple of days ago, I was going to say, last week. Uh, Double Lines, Jeffrey Gunluck said, sell everything. Nothing looked good here. Today, he gets a second to that emotion from Bill Gross, who's out with his new investment advisory newsletter from Janus Capital, says, buy gold. He says, I don't like bonds. I don't like stocks. I don't like private equity. Real assets such as land, gold, and tangible planted equipment at a discount are the favored asset categories. And obviously, we will be talking with uh, the uh, sage from Newport Beach on Friday, Jobs Day, as always, Tom. Uh, Bill Gross will be joining us at 8.30 Wall Street time, and we can ask him about this. Uh, but he said that uh, with lack of global growth, you're getting a, a Ponzi scheme in the markets. Uh, Michael Purvis is with us. I, I sort of asked you this question earlier, but now you've got this, uh, these strong comments from Bill Gross backing up what uh, Jeff Goodluck said, two of the best-known investors in the world. They hate everything in the, uh, in the Wall Street asset <clears throat> classes at this point. Well, I don't hate everything in the Wall Street asset classes as we were just talking about. I do think there's some uh, very interesting long opportunities within U.S. equities um, and and uh, in some emerging market equities. But on gold, I'm absolutely on that same page, and I think it's a it's a it's going to continue to be a good trade this year and, and well into next year. And there's a few reasons for that. First of all, you have the uh, you know the relative yield argument. You know, with with so much of sovereign paper negative or certainly very very low, it makes the relative cost ownership. But I think there's a broader issue here about the rise of a more dynamic geopolitical uh, and political uh, discussion in, 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 the, in the Eurozone as well. And yet there's an even uh, additional factor that, that what I think is going to set up here is that in the U.S. you're going to start seeing higher inflation prints and you're going to see the Fed, uh, you're not going to see the 10-year Treasury a, a yield really rise because it's the ten-year Treasury yield is really anchored by what's happening by in the Japanese and 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 German bond markets. So what has effectively happened here is that the the Fed has ceded a little bit of its ability to control things to some of these foreign central banks and their policies. And if inflation continues to rise, that's going to set the table for for gold to move up, you know, uh, several hundred dollars of an ounce. Is inflation good for stocks? 
Yes, it is. And it's needed for stocks. If you look at if you map. So is now the expectation out six months of higher inflation. Once we get the inflation, is that too late to be in stocks? Well, I would I would say I think right now, you know, we've seen, you know, extended price earnings ratios uh, here. Right. You know, we're at post great financial highs in the in the P.E.s. I think you're going to start seeing in the second half of this year and the first half of next mm-hmm. year, you're going to see nominal GDP pick up. If you look at nominal GDP, it was really weak last right. year, right on top of okay. the revenue growth collapse. That was right. It was inflation that was contracting last year. And now I think it's going to start okay. recovering. And folks, to translate that into the P divided by the E, Mr. Purvis is suggesting that nominal GDP picks up, which means revenue picks up and drifts down the income statement to a higher E. May I suggest, Mike McKee, that Mr. Gross and others are looking for a diminished P within the P.E.? Uh, well, the, the, then that's a, that's the diff. That's I believe, Michael, the distinction in the debate. That's what they seem to be saying yesterday. Uh, Bill was suggesting that it just takes a small move in price to wipe you out these days because valuations are yeah. so artificial. You're not. You're disagreeing. You're going to do this. No, no, I'm. I'm not disagreeing. I'm. I'm saying that the walls of worry out there are now many and focused. They're, they're very sharp opinions. This is going to happen. And, Michael, around us all is the basic hedge fund carnage. Right. The reality exactly. that people that listen to Gary Schilling have made a ton of money, or Steve Major at HSBC, and people that were long and dumb and buy and hold look like geniuses. Right. Right now, the, the S&P is up uh, about 6% year-to-date, right? We're um, all going to die. Equity market sentiment has been um, really cautious or sort of pale green light throughout most of this year. What I think is really fascinating is that in March, if you look at the VIX positioning in the futures market, it went from extraordinarily bullish VIX back <clears throat> in February to, right. to extraordinarily bearish VIX uh, really after the March FOMC. I think that's the key pivot point. There and the VIX market got it right. I mean, you know, what what do we see here? We see extremely low realized vol on the heels of fresh lifetime and, highs in the NDX, the SPX, and the and the DAX. Mike, I go back to my proxy. I do not own shares in Colgate. I should point out, Mike, as well. I don't floss. That's in the news today. Well, that's okay. That's now. almost too yeah. much information. Why you? Was that too much information for radio? Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Why I'm in the Why you Yen uh, uh, timeout chair. Colgate, uh, Michael McKee and Michael Purvis, has done 12.2% for the last 10 years, climbing against a set of walls of worry. Why are these recent walls of worry different from all the other ones? I I think the... The real focal point here is is that the the role of central banking and the role of the ten year treasury yield in the equity equation has become more and more dominant, and if there's a reversal in that, right? If that if that if that uh, cork explodes the other way and we have a massive sell off in sovereign paper, that is going to be you know very disruptive to the equity framework that is supporting a lot of these things which is let's face it you know buybacks will go out the window if the 10 year treasury is at 3.5% uh the cost of uh you know certainly the cost of of debt capital is going to go up a lot and that's going to hurt earnings and all that that's been part of that the thing is how do you um pop this bill gross bond bubble at any time in the foreseeable future. It's hard for me to imagine. I'm not saying I'm do on the 10-year going to 1%. Do you imagine camp, it's a but, jump condition? 
What was the word we used? Ta- well, tantrum? Is it going to be a tantrum I, or is it smooth glide path? I think it's going to be more of a, a, a smooth with the occasional speed bump glide path than it is something truly traumatic. You know, you had this taper tantrum May of 2013. Bernanke said, uh, you know, taper and the bond yield, uh, the 10-year yield went from 1.5 up to 2 to 2 and a quarter and onwards up to 3%. And what happened? Every economic metric in the U.S. basically rolled over because the market is so steeled to low interest rates. Mm-hmm. I think the Fed understands that. I think other their peers and other central banks understand that, that it has to be a, a, a glide path. So the only way to get it not to be a glide path really is for some complete rejection of all these investors who are ultimately supporting bonds to, to say, you know, uh, we're not going to own this asset class. It's hard to really envision where do they go with all that money, right? I mean, and so um, in, in in a sudden way. Now, the big tail risk, I think, in this is does is there a political event that absol- that somehow transforms the way some of these central banks are operating? That could be something where you oh. don't get a glide path. But again, that's really a t- I put that in the tail camp and not not okay. not in the base case. Are, are you long the markets? I mean, within all of this professional discussion, all people want to know is should they be in the markets? Tom, two weeks ago, I took my year-end price target of twenty-one fifty on the S and P five hundred and raised it up to twenty-two fifty, and, 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 and decreased my earnings at the same time. I, I was at one twenty on S and P earnings for the year. I brought it down to one fifteen. My big thesis is that the P E expansion. I think people are going to have to just get used to these. 20 handle PEs and learn to live with it. And I think that's that's really the rub. Folks, there are moments in Bloomberg surveillance that are dramatic and we'll do international relations. What you just heard from Mr. Purvis there is something to think about six months out and one year out to translate the E goes down and the P goes up in the ratio. I would respectfully suggest that is an outlier call. Michael Purvis, as always, thank you so much to the Whedon. Great. Uh, your optimism on the uh, American economy and American investment is greatly appreciated. David Gurr with me right now. Michael McKeon, the surveillance golf stream. David Gurr and Tom Keen. Steve Shork with us. The Shork Report. Steve, is $40 a barrel now different than $40 a barrel was X number of quarters ago? Uh, Absolutely, Tom, because a couple of quarters ago, uh, you had $40 a barrel, and where were we? We were on the cusp of seasonality. That is to say that we knew crude oil demand was going to be high. We Mm -hmm. knew gasoline demand was going to be high because gasoline prices were so low. So $40 oil... When you juxtapose that with $55, gasoline and diesel fuel, uh, you certainly had the incentive for the refinery to ramp up production during the last two quarters. And indeed, that's what we have seen. But now, $40 a barrel oil is a completely different story because we are now at the end of the season. So we are about to transition into the weakest demand part of right. the year. Okay, you say that. A lot of guys at 60,000 feet, you're down looking at valves and wrenches and bolts and the whole thing. The eco guys are all saying demand will persist. Guys like Steve Shork and Phil Verliger are saying, uh, maybe not. <laughs> Discuss. 
that's it because yes, demand will persist. We're about we're, demand is about to, uh, to, to about to you know fall off. You know, crude oil demand in September and October will be a million barrels fewer than than it is today because as we go into turnaround season. So yes, I do not argue about the demand side, but let's keep in mind that this is also a supply side. You have to you know you always have to look at the other side of the equation. So where the market, where the bulls made a lot of hay, shall we say, back at the end of the winter and early spring was on the notion of fallen U.S. production, which is obviously true. Production in the United States is now 1.3, 1.4 million barrels lower today than where it was at its peak last year. But let's keep in mind, the United States is not the only producer of crude oil out there. In that vein, for every one barrel the U.S. producer took off of the market over the last year, mm-hmm. OPEC replaced that oil with two barrels. So hence why, yes, demand is strong. And in fact, guys, demand for gasoline in the United States this summer has never been stronger. We had record gasoline demand this summer. And guess what? We also set a record supply for gasoline on the East Coast. This is the market area that delivers, takes and makes delivery against the Dynamics contract. This is the first time ever that we saw record gasoline supply occur in the summer. Mm. It normally occurs in the first quarter when all that snow and rice yeah. kills off a lot of demand. So the bulls, the market, took demand's best shot this year. Record gasoline supply right. and near-record right. crude oil demand, and the right. glut persists. Let's bring in David Gurr. David? Yeah, Stephen, if Tom will indulge me, I'll have you... Pull down, <laughs> pull away from the valves, put down the wrench, and pull back to maybe 30,000 feet, 60,000 feet. Sure. And just explain to me what happened to this 32% rally we saw up until June. And I wonder, when you look at the history books, when you look at seasonality here, is it useful to compare this to what we saw, say, in 2014? Uh, very interesting what happened this year. We had, David, the largest short-covering rally that we had ever seen. Back in the first half of February, Wall Street was record short. They had never sold more oil forward than they had at that point. And therefore, you had weeks after week, February, March, and April, where the bear was buying more oil than the bull. How is that possible? They were covering their shorts. So the speculative bull never bought into this market. This market was fueled primarily by speculators covering. When you look at the commitments of trader reports every Friday afternoon, you were seeing in some instances for every one barrel that the bullish speculator was buying, the bearish speculator was buying back 10, 11, 12 barrels. So when the bear is out buying the bull, hence you get a 32% rally. You also look at what was the producer, David, doing at this time. The producer in the Brent crude oil market, which is the global market for oil, sold in 19 weeks. They set 17 record short positions. A producer only shorts oil when they're hedging forward production. So the producer was telling us that they were not going to pull back, and they were taking advantage of this rally, and they were selling the heck out of it. So now that we're at a point, and Labor Day is four or five weeks away, once Labor Day hits, gasoline demand comes off, crude oil demand comes off, we have the speculator who's now more into balance right. and the producer who's well-hedged. Let me ask you about reports here. We're going to see some of these Libyan ports uh, come back online. They've been offline, I think, for a couple of years now. When you look at the global picture here, uh, you know, is that going to just extend this glut as you see it? 
I believe so, David. Uh, and uh, you know, also, let's keep in mind, and I forgot to bring this up, thank you for reminding me, is we also had those Fort McMurray fires back in May, which knocked off 800,000 barrels a day of Canadian pr- production for, for a little while. That Canadian production is coming back online. It's coming back online at a time of the year when our demand is falling. And to your point with regard to Libya, and also in my main thesis, and this has been my thesis since November 2014 and that OPEC meeting on the Thursday, that Thanksgiving 2014, is we are looking at the largest chasm between the Sunni side of OPEC and the Shia side of OPEC. So Saudi Arabia, the Sunnis, have no yeah. interest in financing Iran's <clears throat> nuclear ambitions. Right. So they are going to keep, I believe, the world awash in oil. Okay. You got the word bearish a lot in your dense report. Folks, we protect <laughs> the copyright of our guests. We're not going to send you out the short report. Get it from Steve Short. I watched Phillies baseball last night, Steve. Oh, it was a sight to behold. <laughs> it was a sight. I, I, it was just, it's just, it's unique. Phillies baseball is just unique. Steve, give us your call on oil. I believe you're bearish. How bearish is bearish? <laughs> yeah, I've I've been bearish and and I've been bearish uh, you know, for the last few years. I got nicked up uh, at the at the winter because I, I I broke the cardinal rule of trading. You never fade seasonality. Uh, seasonality that is demand. Where's oil going? Cut to the chase. Oh <laughs> no! I, I, I look. I, I you know I, I was in the media. I liked it below forty dollars. I like it back below thirty dollars as we go. You in. think so, that we have? This is serious. You, we have a supply yeah. demand dynamic now to retest the twenty nine level. Absolutely. Record gasoline uh, supplies, guys, near record crude oil supplies for this time of the year, and demand is about to fall. I wow. still like oil lower, and I think we could test and that what's, $30. What's so interesting here, folks, and I don't have any math on this, David, or anything, is 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 short. That's an outlier call now, David, more than it was when it was the last time to 29. Stephen Short, brilliant. Thank you so much. The Short <coughs> Report. Joining us, someone who's going to clear the air. We usually speak to Stanley Collender about the budget, about news in Washington, but now the news is wherever the presidential candidates are. Stan, is there a demonstrable Secretary Clinton fiscal plan or a Mr. Trump fiscal plan? Well, it's interesting you asked today, Tom. Uh, Yesterday, Trump started talking about – Donald Trump, excuse me – started talking about he was going to double the amount that that Hillary was going to spend on uh, on infrastructure. Uh, That would be $550, $600 billion. That would be on top of a tax cut plan that that would lose between $10 and $13 trillion, according to various estimates. So the fiscal plan for Donald Trump is not complete, but it's a big, big – deficit increaser, debt increaser. Um, By contrast, the Hillary Clinton plan uh, has been estimated by others, not by me, by others, as being about break-even. But I I would urge everybody that uh, uh, you can't take any of these things seriously at this point. Okay, I'll go Uh, with that, but come on. It's a back and forth. Joe Weisenthal of Bloomberg stand yesterday put out a tweet where he goes, Donald Trump Keynesian, something like that. I paraphrase. Is Donald Trump someone associated with modern Keynesian theory? 
No, he's not associated with any economic theory in, in particular. Uh, and, and, and in fact, that's been missing from the budget debate, if, excuse me, from the uh, election debate uh, it, completely. Any serious discussion about the budget, fiscal policy, economics, other than I'm going to make it better. And that's both sides. Uh, but um, Trump in particular has, has gone out of his way to say, I'm going to cut taxes. I'm going to spend more. I'm not going to touch Medicare and Social Security. I, I think they, they should be increased, if anything. Um, I don't think it's Keynesian. I think it's political. Uh, that is to try to appeal to as many different groups as possible. And it's just not doable, uh, given the current state of the, of the economy and the current state of the, of the budget. Stan, David Gura here. Always great to talk to you. I, I tell you, we've got to stop meeting this way. That is, whenever we talk about the prospect of a government shutdown, you're the man, the man that we call. It's happening again. You're writing about that. The chances of this happening aren't great, but there are chances that it could happen here in the next few months. And I was reading your most recent piece on this, uh, and you wrote that a shutdown would put Donald Trump in a very difficult spot. He'd either have to support a Republican leadership that wouldn't seem to be in control, or he'd have to criticize it and put the GOP House and Senate majorities in further jeopardy. Look at the news from last yeah. night. Here's Donald Trump seemingly throwing his support behind Paul Ryan's rival, then saying he does not intend to support Paul Ryan, the Speaker of the House. Uh, <laughs> I, yeah. I hate to say it kind of neg negates your argument here. We already have Donald Trump here going against the Republican leadership uh, on Capitol Hill. No, it doesn't negate it at all. First of all, let's just say that we remind everybody that, I, that that my piece was published on Sunday, and and Trump took to it took till Tuesday to decide that Paul Ryan wasn't his guy. And one of the things I said in the piece was that it's it's entirely possible that rather than feel as if he's got to support the Republican leadership, he may just decide to to break with them. And you would it would seem to indicate from what he said yesterday that breaking with him is what he's going to do. Uh, now let's let's not take one day in the campaign as an indication of, of what's going to happen, because anything what, what we know for sure is that this campaign is as, as variable as possible, and that uh, Trump in particular doesn't seem to remember from one day to another what he's promised and what he said he's going to do. So there could be a kumbaya moment as we're talking over the radio. Um, but uh, let's get back to the basic thing here. That is that uh, a shutdown is not impossible, given the logistics. That is, they've only got about nine or ten full legislative days by the time Congress gets back in September. Before it's got the an enviable working begins. schedule, Stan. Uh, yeah, you know, I mean, they're 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 home from uh, basically the beginning of July to the to Labor Day. It's uh, they would say they're working, but uh, they're you know they're also nice work on if you can get it, yeah. Um, and and even the days that they're here in Washington, they're not going to be full working days. They don't. Uh, they, in some days, they don't take boats in the house until after six thirty. Other days, they won't take boats in the house after four p.m. Uh, p.m. Right. Um, so uh, that's why you can't – any one issue, as, as Tom and I have talked for many years about this, any one emotional issue, like uh, the, some of which the Republicans have already raised, could easily throw a monkey wrench into, the, into this, uh, the plan of preventing a government shutdown. And that's what I was trying to say, which is you can't dismiss it out of hand. I uh, wonder what the biggest cost here is that you see. If, if there is a shutdown, is the biggest cost political? I think of the American people and their faith in Congress right now. So minimal. Can it go any lower? Well, yeah. I mean, it's got a few percentage points. What's it, 9 or 10% <laughs> approval rating for Congress? So they've got a little ways to go. Um, it, 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 a lot, look, short term, the political cost will be the greatest, especially because the Republicans are likely to get blamed given the baggage and the fact that they've been blamed for the last few shutdowns over the, you know, since Newt Gingrich's time. If this lasts more than two or three weeks, it'll start to have an economic impact as government contractors start to right. shut down operations. Stan Collender, let me ask you the basic question. Are my taxes going up? 
Um, in the next six months, no. But um, in the next five years, almost certainly. I mean, no matter who gets elected. Is it back to Rockefeller? I mean, are we back to the marginal rate my father was? No, no. It, we're, not, we're not talking about the pre-Reagan rates. But um, it, there won't be comprehensive tax reform unless there's some increase in rates um, to cover the, uh, the elimination of some of the uh, – of a variety of other provisions. Um, so rates will go up a little bit, uh, and, and the, the total effect will be you'll be paying higher taxes because some of the uh, deductions and credits will go away as well. Oh, you're kidding. I'm shocked. Stan, Cor- Stan Collender with us about the elimination of deductions and credits. Stan Collender with us, fiscal policy. I noticed on the CBO site, Stan, Corvus MSL Group, that there's no discussion of presidential politics. or The CBO wouldn't do that. But buried at the bottom of their, their, their page is something that matters for President Clinton or matters for President Trump, which is potential GDP and underlying inputs which is really pretty arcane, but it goes, Stan, to the guesstimate forward. You own this territory. Can we make an intelligent guesstimate now like we did 10 and 20 years ago, or is it just hopeless? Uh, Hopeless is probably too strong a term, but um, when you're talking about projecting the U.S. economy 20 years out, you're talking about something that's pure fantasy. Uh, you're talking about you know multiple elections. You're talking about multiple international incidents. You're talking about a global as opposed to a closed you know a domestic economy. Can we go out uh, eight years? Probably not. I would say anything more longer than two or three is is pure guesswork, uh, and 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 becomes increasingly less reliable the longer you get out. Um, I mean, look, you you've used the word fiscal policy a couple of times already. What fiscal policy? I mean, the fiscal policy we're using now is is basically the same one we've had for the last five years. Because Congress and then the president haven't been able to get their act together on coming to coming up with a budget that's relevant to either where we are now or where they think we're going. To right. Be. Stan, let me have you forecast something that I think might be a little bit easier, and that is what this budget process is going to look like. We have had CR, continuing resolution after continuing resolution. It's become the order of the day. We've had it time and time again. Is this government now relying on that completely? In other words, are we ever going to see a return to the kind of appropriations process, the kind of budgeting process that we've had in the past, or is this the the new normal? Uh, this is the new, the new normal. Uh, there's no incentive to do real appropriations. Uh, the, the, in fact, there's a, a disincentive to do it. Um, and let me take it a little longer, to, a, a larger point, David, and that is that not only are you going to see not individual appropriations very often, you're not going to see a budget anytime soon. Uh, you know, we haven't had one for five years or so, and Congress and the president, Congress in particular, just isn't going to be able to get its act together to come up with, to, to get an agreement on consensus on anything. So when they talk about changing the budget process to fix it, don't believe it. When they talk about regular order, don't believe it. We're going to muddle through, and it's all going to be on the monetary side that, that's going to be the controlling or trying to control the economy. And is anybody, say, for you upset about that, or does it seem like when you're on Capitol Hill, you talk to representatives, you talk to senators, they're okay with the fact that that's the new order of the day? Um, they're not okay with it, but they're, they're less okay with what the changes might be. I mean, uh, I've testified in front of the House and Senate Budget Committee this year about how to change the process. And what I've told them is don't do it uh, because you're going to disagree. on. I mean, there's no agreement or consensus on what to do or how to do it anyway. So all you're going to do is provide a, pool, a cruel hoax to voters who think that you're making things better. Um, so muddle along is, I think, going to be the, the order of the day probably through the end of the decade. So they had a hearing with you, but not a hearing on the president's budget. 
Right. That was one of the things I pointed out to them. I said, how is it possible that they invited me to testify but not the director of the Office of Management and Budget? Unbelievable. Um, I called that the political equivalent of chutzpah. And, and Tom Keene will explain that to you. Yeah. <laughs> it's CFA level four. Um, Stan, <laughs> Stan, you know, I look at this, and we have so been through this before, but seriously, what is the urgency? We've got Speaker Ryan jousting with Mr. Trump and Secretary Clinton. On Twitter. Always, you know, to be honest, always trying to piece together a Democratic coalition. They're the undecideds in that. And they always use your world to create fear. Is it valid now to create fear about our fiscal future, or is that overwrought? Well, overwrought is probably the better way to look at it now. Um, all the deficits gold groups uh, would tell you that the, the debt is still an, an issue, and it, it will be getting bigger over, over time. But currently, I don't know too many economists who think the deficit as a percent of GDP is worrisome. In fact, many would like it to be larger, um, given the slow growth in the economy. Um, so it's just not going to be much of an issue this year. Uh, there is, it will reemerge. The, the, the deficit and the debt, the federal debt is uh, an emotional as opposed to a substantive issue for most voters. But I don't see the candidates talking about it because they don't have a clue how to deal with it. You know, I, I see you, Stan, as the captain of a ship, maybe floating in the Potomac, taking on water. You're shaking your fist at the heavens, <laughs> urging these candidates to talk more about this. Do you think there's any likelihood that's going to be happening? For all the concern about the state of the U.S. economy, all the talk about the U.S. worker, his condition, what's going to happen to him here in the next few years? Why is it, do you think, that politicians are not concerned uh, about budget policy, about bipartisanship on the Hill? Why isn't this coming to the fore? Uh, well, bipartisanship has gone out of the way for years. Is, is, is gone to the wayside, you know, for for years now, um, and is not. There just isn't anything. Uh, even even in the, in the absence of a crisis, a severe crisis, we, it's not likely you're going to get bipartisanship on any issue. Um, but the econ the economy has taken a backseat here to highly emotional issues about leadership, about place in the world for the country, uh, about some sort of macho patriotism, um, and substance. I mean, do, are we talking about energy policy? Are we talking about the economy? Are we? I mean, only in the most general terms. And I don't see this happening or changing anytime soon. My biggest fear is, I said, you're going to need a crisis. How big a crisis are we going to need given the crisis fatigue we've had in this country for the last 10 years or so? Where's the deficit to GDP right now? Oh, two and a half, three percent. That's like a massive victory lap for all involved. Why are we so miserable? Well, Tom, you know, I tell you this a lot, thinking rationally about this. I mean, don't forget, uh, going back to the Puritans, a, a yes. government in debt, a government in deficit was considered to be a corrupt government, and that has maintained its way through the American psyche for 250, 350 years. Um, you can't – I can tell you from the comments I get on my blog on Forbes that um, – you just mentioned that the deficit should be higher, and, and there are people seriously want to removing body parts from the author. So um, it's totally it, – it, remember, the Bloomberg audience is more thoughtful about this than the average American voter. They're getting your John Winthrop illusion there. Yeah. <laughs> no, but, but all of us grew up with this. There was always some nut job in the family that was quoting 1680 Massachusetts. I mean, seriously, I mean, you know, the theology you speak of is valid. Do you see a lessening of it or is that always our fallback? The debt to build aircraft carriers is bad. 
Yeah, look, it, it, it's the bad part. It, it's we should all, you know, in spite of the fact that we have ample evidence that there are times the government should run a deficit uh, and should go into debt. Thank you, Alexander Hamilton. Um, you know, and, and we did we do musicals about him, obviously. Um, <laughs> you know, it, it, the theology is there, the fear is there, and. People, American voters, the average American voter still make that bad analogy, which is I have to balance my budget. Why shouldn't the government? And by the way, the average American Mm -hmm. is more in debt than the government is. Stan, thanks for the briefing. It's just wonderful to speak to you, given the uh, volume of noise across both parties that we've had over the last days and weeks. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on iTunes, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Michael McKee is at McConomy. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. Bloomberg Radio.